This week's episode of Ticklish Business was recorded several weeks before the untimely passing of actress Olivia Newton-John. We here at Ticklish Business wish to extend our deepest and heartfelt condolences to Olivia Newton-John's friends and family, and we hope that this episode can do a small part to put a smile on your face and remember why Olivia Newton-John is so awesome. Now, on to the show. John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, Grease, the Broadway smash that made theatrical history by becoming one of the longest-running musical comedies of all time, breaks loose on the motion picture screen. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen, and we are going back to school. I cannot believe that we are actually into August. That terrifies me because that means 2022 is almost over. But then again, maybe we're all happy that 2022 is almost over. But we are talking about the best part of going back to school the movies associated with it. And what better movie to talk about than 1978's Grease, the story that has everything, song, dance, 25-year-old high schoolers. I am joined by two people that I could not have discussed this episode without, BJ and Harmony Colangelo of the podcast, This Ends at Prom. How are both of you? We're great and raring to go. BJ's already heated up and it's not just because it's 90 some degrees today. <laughs> I was going to say, you're being so generous by saying 25 year old high schoolers. We got a few <laughs> crossing 30. And we're going to talk about the best high schooler, which is Cha-Cha Di Gregorio. Uh, I'm saying this right now, justice for Cha-Cha. Right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know both of you have talked about a lot of going back to school movies. You've talked about Greece as well on The Sense of Prom. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to want to start your podcast and how you're finding new ways to look at movies that a lot of people just write off as frivolous? Sure. So The Sunset Prom actually started out as a column. It was supposed to be a column for an unnamed women's magazine. And then all of that beautiful freelance money dried up when 2020 hit. So I got the the rights to the idea back. But what it stemmed from is that I am a big, staunch advocate for teen cinema. I'm a huge defender of teen cinema, especially teen cinema that is geared towards women and young girls because they're very influential. We like to pretend that this is a genre that is really shallow or doesn't have a lot of impact. And yet you hit somebody with the right movie and they'll talk about how important it is to them and how vital it was to their upbringing. That is where I come from. And then Harmony, my wife and co-host, had a very different upbringing than what I had. Oh yeah, it's really fun to be on a podcast where I'm not obligated to know anything about the things we're talking about until we (laughs) sit down to do it. That's very luxurious. I just get to come at it with, let's do character analysis and historical context and just look at the text. And you're like, no, you don't understand. This is metacasting (laughs) because Hillary Duff was this person. And I'm like, ah, sure, tell me more. Um, Why not both? You know, (laughs) get all of that. Absolutely. Really, the whole point of The Sunset Prom originally started out as showing these movies that were seminal to my upbringing that Harmony completely missed because she's a trans woman. And therefore, these were not exactly the movies that a 12, 13 year old at the time socialized boy was going to be watching. So I need to know 
is this movie actually any good or am I just forever going to be trapped with my feelings that I had watching this as a 13 year old? And that was the original intention. As the show has gone on and as we've expanded, we've matured, we've matured. (laughs) And as we've expanded to films that either came before my time or films that are more recent, we've gotten a lot more into looking at what messaging is going out into the world and how was it received. We did an episode on Twilight and it is barely about the movie and more about the craze of Twihards and fandom and what happened with the director and the way that people just love to trash things that are popular with women for the sake of that's popular with women. That's where we are now. And I quite like it. I like where we've landed after almost two years of this. Just natural development, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that you have done an episode on Greece. So I'm curious what you both thought of it before the podcast. What was your background with it? We talk about films that turn people into classic film fans whether that's the Universal Monsters, Singing in the Rain, but Greece does not get enough appreciation for being a gateway into classic film, considering how many actors, both classic and contemporary, are in it. What was your background with the film before you discuss it on your show? To call Greece a landmark is almost an understatement because I did the math when we covered it for our show, and I believe, adjusted for inflation, Greece made a billion dollars. It made so much money. It made more money than anything we have ever and probably ever will cover on our show because teen girl movies don't make billions of dollars. It's a big deal. It's omnipresent and had no strong feelings about, but understood the appeal. BJ, on the other hand, had very, very (laughs) strong feelings. Okay, so let me just say, I am one of the premier defenders of Greece too. And because of that, for many, many years, I prided myself on being the Greece to greater than bracket, greater than bracket a hundred times Greece. That was my brand, so to speak. So I've been very publicly critical of a lot of the problems that I have with Greece, but I will very much say the issues that I have with Greece are less about the movie itself and more about the way that it has been adopted by culture and mm-hmm. the things that people have been willing to look past because the movie is so beloved. I have a similar feeling about The Goonies, where it's like, it's cool if you love this movie, but you also need to admit that there are a lot of problems with it. And people struggle to accept movie I love with movie has problematic elements to it. They don't want to hold both of those truths at the same time. So that's where a lot of my feelings about Greece come into play. But I definitely have a massive appreciation for it. It is a landmark piece of cinema. It is absolutely one of the most, if not the most vitally important movie musical ever made. My feelings on it have greatly evolved since I was a very bitter, I took film theory 101 student. (laughs) I have a much more nuanced and appreciative approach to it at this point. I am the exact opposite, which is why I'm so excited that you are going to be talking about Grease 1 and 2 with me because I had prided myself on, I don't need to ever see Grease 2. It can't be as good as the first Grease. And then I finally saw the sequel and no, my opinion is still the same. I don't understand the love for Grease 2, but we'll get into that when we talk about that later. Let's talk about this piece of 1978 nostalgia. This is directed by Randall Kleiser, 
who most people might recall as the director of not just Grease, but he also did The Blue Lagoon, Flight of the Navigator, White Fang, and John Travolta's TV movie debut in The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. It tells the story set in 1958 of the denizens of Rydell High, led by the T-Birds, led by Danny Zuko, played by John Travolta, who falls in love with the sweet Australian transplant Sandy, played by Olivia Newton-John. Of course, they cannot be together because he's tough as nails and she's Australian. Love pregnancies, question mark, dance-offs happen. It is the reason we have High School Musical today. I remember Greece was always present in my life in some way, but I remember seeing it relatively late, like eight or nine or 10, and literally thought it was a movie about auto workers for a long time. It's <laughs> like, oh, what's this movie, Grease? And then I was like, but then wait, why is it called that if they're not? So I was a very confused child. I saw it and I really liked it. And then I became a teenager and realized that this movie is filthy, depending on what song you're singing. <laughs> I have a loving interest in this film because as you both were saying, you're totally right. It has become almost this otherworldly thing. And yet in 1978, talking about 1958 is a far cry from somebody watching it in 2020 or maybe even 1988, 10 years later, and mm-hmm. looking back at it in the 1970s, which is really bizarre that we've come farther from when Greece came out than the time period it's actually talking about when it came out. Greece is such a fascinating look at nostalgia. It was appropriately aged nostalgia at the time. And then we returned to the 50s with Reagan. And then it was like 1950s nostalgia by way of 1980s nostalgia that we've had for the last 15 years now as a country in our media. It's really a very fascinating piece of media to unpack in that sense. I asked my mom if she remembered seeing this movie when it came out and what she thought about it. She's like, oh, I just thought it was a fun musical. But I watch movies now that were made in the 80s, something like Stand By Me. That movie is set right at a very specific time period because it doesn't want to get into the horrors of the civil rights movement. A lot of 80s lookbacks at the 50s are specifically looking at the 50s because we don't want to get into the horrors of the 60s with Vietnam and Mm -hmm. race relations. We still see that now, even though we should have moved beyond the 80s at this point into the 90s. We're not really looking at the actual turbulent times that we know existed, whereas Greece lives in this really weird world of malt shops and happiness, but it also does not seem to understand that it also is pointing out the misogyny. Dare I say the racism because there are no people of color in this movie. That's impossible to overlook. All of these things that now I was thinking, God, I wonder what audiences at that time thought of this movie because it's so sanitized. I have to think people watching it in 78 were like, I don't even remember that. Oh, definitely. And that does end up becoming one of my big criticisms of this movie is that You're so right in looking at a lot of these songs. Some of them are filthy. This is coming from a time period where we started getting mental hygiene films in the school systems where they were teaching kids in the 50s how to be upstanding young Americans. Those films only exist if the children are rebelling in a way and you're trying to control them, which is what they were doing. So you have something like Greece where they're just winking at the fact that teenagers were starting to become rebellious. They were starting to have their own money and their own vehicles and their own autonomy in their own lives. 
it almost gets to where I want it to, but doesn't. It's always interesting how people misremember this movie as being this very wholesome, all-American thing. And that's why I used to joke quite frequently during the last presidency, the America they're talking about is Greece. It's Make America Greece Again, where it's this idealized look at the 50s that existed in some instances, but mostly this is a fantasy world of that time period. It's basically like a cartoon. It's a caricature. When you think of 1950s as somebody who's not from the 50s, as someone who's even born in the 80s or 90s, most of the time you see Halloween costumes that are greased costumes, not actual 50s costumes. Right, totally. <laughs> most people forget that this was a adaptation of a 1971 Broadway show of the same name that was also incredibly popular, but it's also far darker. I remember seeing Greece on stage and just being like shocked at how all of the things that the movie only hints at, Rizzo's pregnancy scare. The teens in the play are acting far more like teens that you understand than the movie version itself, which just brings up the fact that this was adapted by Robert Stigwood, who was a music guy, did a lot of movies, including 1975's Tommy, and was very big in bringing rock back into cinema aimed at teenagers. This movie completely presents teenagerdom as we see it, as this very chaste, Kids make out, and apparently that's how they get pregnant, even though there's a sequence with a condom. We're not really understanding what that is and how things work. So it's a very sanitized adaptation of the source material, which is also shocking to audiences when they finally do see when it comes to their local regional theater. And they're like, oh, go see Grease. And it's not at all like the movie. Oh, yeah. I've been in those productions because my introduction to the movie is that I've been an insufferable theater kid since birth. This is baby's first movie musical that mom and grandma show you in the living room because you can sing on key. We're going to watch Grease with you then. So I've been in a production of Grease. Jan is a fat girl, and that's just completely erased from the movie. They give her a lot of food jokes, but she doesn't actually get to be fat, which is infuriating for a number of reasons. But what happened is when you have a movie like Grease, the other really good example of this is Annie where the movie becomes so popular that when people see the stage adaptation, if Sandy is not blonde, oh, there are just riots in the street. How dare you cast this brunette or this redhead as Sandy? She looks nothing like Olivia Newton-John. How do you know she's a good girl? She's not blonde. (laughs) When they did the TV version, the TV musical version, remember when those were a thing just a couple of years ago, we adapted Uh all the shows for television. When they did Grease Live, I was like, oh, okay, we're going to do the play though, right? Nope, we just did the movie and maybe (laughs) added in a couple things, but also sanitized it even more Mm -hmm. for a TV audience. So they changed the lyrics to Grease Lightning and they changed the quasi-lechy drive-in sequence that happens. But it's literally like a weird anthropological project to watch how Grease becomes more sanitized the further and further away it gets and it was already sanitized in 1978. Yes. That's, and that's so wild to think about. Because I understand why we sanitize it now. It was for network TV. They want to capture a Glee audience. That makes sense. But it's so weird to think about it as coming out in the 70s, which is generally like, oh, hey, we're post-code. We're going to get really sleazy. We're going to do really gritty things, even in kids' films like Bad News Bears. We're going to do that. These kids are going to be drinking beer and smoking and saying all these horrible things as 10-year-olds because it's the 70s and we can <laughs> 
ignoring that there's a source material, it almost feels like the sleaziness of this is incidental in the movie as it feels like it's supposed to be way more bubblegum than it ended up. Essentially, when your parents or your grandparents tell you about this time, they talk about their parents. People also assume the 70s is supposed to be this decade, right, of rebellion. Mm -hmm. Hippies and flower power and screw the man. And it's not at all evoked here in 1978 in this movie. It's essentially saying that our grandparents and our parents might have had a little fun. Maybe they threw a pie at a coach, but they were not having premarital sex. They were not doing drugs. They were not drinking. They weren't doing anything. And it really is, like you were saying, this return to this magical time period. I almost started thinking about it, and this is something completely a far field, but when people talk about Gone with the Wind, there's, yes. there's this concept that Gone with the Wind evokes this time period that if you are any type of minority, you're going to say, mm, maybe we shouldn't be celebrating this. But there are people for every plantation wedding we see uh-huh. that really think that this antebellum time period is something to hold on to and take to your hearts and find some redeeming quality of it. As much as I love Greece, I feel like it's the same concept. Yeah, I agree. And that is where my frustration comes in because I can sit here and talk about how brilliant and catchy the music is. Oh yeah. How just undeniable the star power is of everybody in here. Oh, Travolta in particular. And all of these things that I want to praise and give flowers to in this movie, it always ends up getting overshadowed by what people have taken from the movie. Which it almost makes it a horrible transition to talk about some of the things that we do like about this movie. You brought up the star power. Holy crap, is there a lot of star power? Not necessarily in John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John and Stockard Channing being the first three names off of this. But for classic film people like me, you see Eve Arden, you got Joan Blondell, Frankie Avalon is here. There are so <laughs> many great examples of classic filmdom. And yet it is always impossible. I know it's low-hanging fruit, but everybody's old. <laughs> that uh-huh. is the one thing that I laugh every time I watch this movie. Some people get away with it. John Travolta looks... Perfect. He makes that pompadour work for him. He does not look like a guy that you're expecting to go have to pick up his children at the end of the day at the elementary school next door. That would probably be some of his buddies, like Kinnicky or Doody. The Dear but- Evan Hansen <laughs> side characters of their day, yes. <laughs> That's something to bring up. Dear Evan Hansen, when that movie came out, a lot of people compared it to this film. Ben Platt said, oh, well, how dare you give us crap because Greece did the same thing and that was worse. And I was like, but is it though? Anybody who watches classic film, you watch Laura, Jean Tierney's supposed to be maybe early 20s and she certainly looks mature, like a woman in her 30s. Age works really weird in classic film because nobody ever looked ultra youthful. They all just look like right. they came out looking like they're 25. But here, I don't know what this movie does that... The age is impossible to ignore. The reason that this feels different to me than, say, a Dear Heaven Hansen is, for one, everyone is old. This isn't Ben Platt being thrown into mm-hmm. a group of teenagers and early 20-somethings. And to be fair, Ben Platt, fantastic performance. It just doesn't work on screen. If you're far away in the theater, perfect, stay. That's great. <laughs> but no, it doesn't work. But in Greece, you kind of are able to suspend your disbelief a little bit because everybody looks so old that you forget 
in a weird way, like the pen 15ism of it, where because Anna and Maya are always together, my brain shuts down and forgets that these are women in their thirties because I constantly see them together. Mm -hmm. So it's only like, oh yeah, that's a reminder is when they're against the other very young children. It's that it's all relative. Right. Yeah. The age shift can't be ignored in this because everybody does look so old. The one that I always shout out is Dennis Stewart, who I love dearly. I love everything that he's done. Wonderful actor. But Leo Valmuda looks like he's 45 and he's not actually that old. He's in his 30s, but he just looks so much older than everybody else. So when he shows up, he's not only just, oh, that's the bad guy, but he's also the bad guy because he looks old and grizzled. Uh I say the same thing about Lorenzo Lamas being in this, which again, more classic film bona fides considering his father, but playing the dumb football player, he looks like he's about 17, 18. Which just makes Sandy's interest in him kind of gross. I just keep thinking like, "Mm, you are a grown woman, ma'am. Please just step (laughs) back away from the child. The 50s costuming does not help either because a lot of these characters are almost cosplay now, the 1950s. John Travolta can make that pompadour work for him in the leather jacket. But some of these actors, it just enhances their age. As much as I love... Stockard Channing is Rizzo. She looks like a Jessica Rabbit sometimes in some of the costumes or Mm -hmm. someone like Olivia Newton-John. The fact that she's wearing poodle skirts and a little neckerchief. I'm not getting teenager. But then this is a movie that also has a subplot where a high school girl is clearly being hit on by a grown man at a dance. That's supposed Uh. to be comical. I say that, though, as somebody who it was technically the Marty Maraschino growing up. Ten years older than me, not a problem. It was a different time. It's impossible to ignore some of the ages. Cha-Cha is probably the one that looks like she is the oldest member of the group. But I maintain that they intentionally make her look unflattering. They can try. I think so, too. Exactly. She's also the only ethnically coded character she's the bad girl they're definitely trying to paint kind of like a little west side story thing going on that's what they're doing to indicate any good faith on their part is being very generous i want to table that conversation for a second and talk about our central couple the romeo and juliet of this story sandy and danny that has become a stereotypical relationship like you mentioned west side story adds a racial component to it But the issue with this is not even as complex as that. They are not able to be together because he's got a reputation to protect. And I'm just thinking, dude, really? So one reason (laughs) you guys can't be together is because you think that being in a relationship is going to make you look. That's the question. Why can't Danny and Sandy be together? What is the problem? Because I've watched this movie a million times and I'm just thinking it's a really dumb plot point. I think you guys could just be together. I'm not really understanding other than Danny Zuko is probably just a horrible person that should not be in a relationship ever. This is much more of a strict plot point in Greece too, that the T-Birds have to be with a pink lady. And also yes. that she's such a stereotypical Christian girl. She's Everything about her. She's too pure to be pink, yeah. as Rizzo says. <laughs> exactly. And that's why he can't be with her, which again, dumb. There's no sex in this movie Although Rizzo has a pregnancy scare, so apparently something has taken place. We just are not seeing it. That's something that I didn't notice really does linger at the peripheries of this movie without it being commented on. Whether it's 
the fact that Danny and Sandy can't be together because she's not a bad girl, which in this instance means she's not going to put out. But then Rizzo is a girl that is sexual. And then she's got this pregnancy scare that really goes nowhere. So it's not necessarily threatening. It just is a thing that happens. Cha-Cha is such a sexual figure. I'm surprised Mm -hmm. she doesn't climb on top of all the guys. So it's something that the movie never talks about, but it permeates every sequence of this movie. And I did not realize that until recently. I actually have a question as the person who is not the Grease expert in the room at all. For people who have seen the filthy stage production of Grease, I'm curious if the T-Birds are presented as cooler or tougher on the stage show than in the movie because they're bubbling oafs in this one and the fact that they're like, I'm too cool for this girl. It reads as strange to me and that's why I think it's like a weird sticking point where it doesn't quite click. I know that in the original play that Sandy is actually a good Catholic girl that's been expelled from a Catholic school. So that's a big thing that happens. And I know that there are more overt discussions about sex, but it's still not defined what the point of these individual gangs are, what these kids actually do with their free time. I just chalked it up to that scene in West Side Story where they're like, what are you rebelling against? And they're like, whatever it is, we don't really care. We have no (laughs) parents that are seeing what we're doing. It's the rebel without a cause thing or the wild one. They're rebelling just to rebel, which is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I've always viewed them as like, the anti-Letterman's Jacket Social Club. That's who these kids are because cliques were so important many years ago. And as much as they're slowly getting dismantled as Gen Z has thrown labels against the wall, we still have them pop up from time to time. They're good shorthand language, but it was important to have your crew. And I think that's where they were established. I know on the stage production, it now becomes difficult because the text is very similar in terms of what the T-Birds do, but everybody performs them like the movie because otherwise then you get bad reviews. So it's become complicated, but they are a little bit sleeker in Grease 1. They are absolutely fools in Grease 2. Mm -hmm. I think it's a social club. It's a way to feel like you're part of something. You're part of a group. This is your people and you stick with your group, which again, there's some weird subtext from the time period it's in if you're that dedicated to sticking with your own kind that again the movie never acknowledges cutting in briefly to talk about our patreon if you're a fan of everything we do here at the show old hollywood classic film pop culture consider subscribing like these wonderful patrons peter blitzstein laura stalker and foster and harry holland Our Patreon page is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. If we can reach 30 subscribers, you'll be treated to a full episode looking at the 1976 TV biopic Gable and Lombard, starring Jill Clayburgh as Carol Lombard and James Brolin as Clark Gable himself. Please consider subscribing to Ticklish Biz and help us reach that goal so we can talk about it. If we get to 100 subscribers, we're looking forward to posting a deep dive into one of Kristen's most infamous classic quote-unquote films, Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? If we get to 100 subscribers, you'll get to hear all our opinions on Love Story. Meanwhile, we have all sorts of special content, including our dual shows, doubled features, and based on a true podcast, as well as the series we just concluded, Being Elvis, looking at all of the Elvis biopics, including Boz Lerman's 2022 feature of the same name. 
Patrons also get access to special buttons as well as free DVDs and Blu-rays throughout the year. So again, why don't you take a chance and visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. See what you like and hopefully we'll see you in our Patreon winner circle soon. Now back to the show. The lack of parental authority. We don't know about any of these teenagers' parents. They talk about them obliquely. But for the most part, I'm assuming that at least half of these characters are living on their own because none of them have money. The T-Birds, almost none of them talk about having parents. We just know that they can afford a crappy car and they have no money to actually do anything other than split things at the diner. Jan has a mom, but that's only because she's hungry and she needs food because (laughs) that's her plot point. Their only real adult interaction, adult being relative in this movie, is the teachers. And even then, they're presented more like the T-Birds bumbling. The only one who's in on everything is Eve Arden as the principal because she's Eve freaking Arden. And of course she's Mm -hmm. in on everything. (laughs) That's what I always dream of. Maybe she started the Pink Ladies because she's awesome and a badass. I don't want to be the person that pops in with Grease 2 things all the time, but it is expanded upon in the sequel. Those are her boys. She constantly refers to them as, and these are my boys. So it feels like she's this overprotective figure who knows that they don't probably have a lot of familial structure in their lives. And she's sort of taken it upon herself to den mother them in weird ways because she lets them get away with some shit. She knows they're up to no good. And it's very much like, you idiots. I love you, but you're idiots. (laughs) I do love that this is a world that exists where Danny Zuko doesn't know how to play basketball or wrestling is not a thing. This is a weird insular world where basic sports are not understood. It's almost like they're aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Something that I think is interesting in talking about Danny Zuko and his lack of ability with sports is whenever people talk about Grace or criticize it or assess it, a lot is discussed about the women, about Sandy's position, about her famous ending reveal makeover about Rizzo's songs about not crying in front of men. A lot is discussed about that. People seldom discuss the fact that Danny's big problem is that the patriarchy hurts everyone, including men, because he feels like he has to live up to a certain expectation. There are certain social things that he has to follow, that he feels pressure because he's seen as this de facto leader by these other boys, because let's be real, they're all kind of bumbling goofs and he's Mr. Cool. So he's got to keep them all in line and he can't show emotion. He can't show how he's really feeling. There's a great deal of embarrassment of him not knowing what to do in the gym class or figuring out sports because he's trying to act super confident. We also get to see that John Travolta is much shorter than everybody else. So that adds another layer to this masculinity (laughs) unpacking. But it's so fascinating to watch somebody so desperately trying to assert their masculinity in a space where they're out of their depth. And we never talk about it. I think we're all just distracted by how short his shorts are in some of those sequences. (laughs) No, but you're totally right. Two of the most controversial songs in this movie, Grease Lightning Aside, which is his own blend of controversy, are very gendered in the sense, look at me, I'm Sandra D is, is a huge one. The concept of Sandra D, especially to audiences, of the 70s, many of whom probably might not have known Sandra Dee's brief run, because by that point, she's not at all a film star, not understanding the connection to virginity. Now I read that song and it's 
sad in a post Britney Spears, all the women that we know that were persecuted for being virgins and not being virgins, how sexuality plays into all of that. But then you also have Danny Zuko's Ballad at the Drive-In, which many people consider one of the worst songs in the entire movie, which I think they said the head of the studio was like, do we really need this? Can we cut it? Because it's terrible. But it is a song that comes as a result of him saying, maybe I want a relationship. Mind you, it's all undermined by the movie screen having a hot dog jump into a bun, but it's the same concept where he's trying to pour his heart out and actually show that he wants this girl, and yet that is frowned upon because of reputation. And if there's any subversive quality to this movie, subversive is light. To look at the Marlon Brandos and some of the other teen rebels of that era, so much of it is now what we know as toxic misogyny. And the Mm -hmm. fact that he's this character in a drive-in talking about, I want to date a girl, I want to fall in love. That seems very controversial for 1978. And almost like they are in on the joke of what they're lampooning. That doesn't happen often in this movie, but it happens there. I honestly think that the reason people don't dive into that scene is one, the events that happened before it are so distracting because he feels her up without consent and it's not okay. Mm-hmm. That's a whole thing. And it's the drive-in snacks in the background because that's what I do. My poor neurodivergent brain immediately is just like, and I'm watching popcorn. I can hear you, John Travolta, but I have priorities here. That's the true American cinema. That's classic Americana is the (laughs) drive-in commercials. You could even make an argument that those being distracting in the background while he's pouring his heart out is mocking the concept of like, yeah, we don't take men's feelings seriously. I would agree with that. This is also a movie I feel where cars have more feelings. Men have more (laughs) feelings for cars than they do for the women in their lives. The scene with Kanicki and Rizzo when they're making out in the back of the car, he seems more upset that the Scorpions have backed into his car than that they insulted the woman that he is with, which I find Mm -hmm. to be hilarious and sad at the same time. Rizzo deserves better. Betty Rizzo deserves far better than what she ended up with. See, Uh, I have been waiting. I know they're doing that Pink Ladies series for one of the streamers. No, I want a Betty Rizzo movie. Give me her in college. Give me her getting out of Rydell. Give me anything with her because she is the most interesting character in the whole movie. (laughs) She definitely is because we don't get that character enough in the classic films that this movie is referring to. Stalker Channing is one of the best singers in the whole movie, I think. But at the same time is playing this girl that, if anything, watching movies of the 80s, 90s today, we all know would have had the worst time in high school because we get a little bit of it. People are talking trash about her right before she starts singing. There are worse things I could do, but slut shaming would have been so prevalent in her life. That's something that even though we don't see it a lot in this movie, that you feel for her as that character. This is a girl that cannot have those feminine friendships because of the rumor mongering. Screw Danny's imaginary reputation. I can't be vulnerable with a girl because my guys are going to give me crap. There's real consequences for poor Rizzo. Men don't treat her with any respect. It's hard for her to have friendships that aren't based in fear. I'm feeling for her. If anybody's got to worry about reputation, it's her. Screw you, Danny Zuko. You don't... A hundred percent. And it happens so quickly too because you get that... I know it's supposed to be a farcical visual gag of everybody sharing 
Rizzo's pregnant, Rizzo's pregnant, going back and forth. And then by the end of it, it's like, out of my way, lady with a baby. And she's like, wow, word travels fast, huh? And I know that's supposed to be a joke, but when you take away that aspect of this is a setup for a joke and really focus on what just happened here, that is devastating. Marty Maraschino is really one of the worst friends in probably all of the history (laughs) of friends. I want to talk about the music. This is a musical in case people don't remember that part. The music is what sold this movie and I think led to that billion dollars because the record was impossible to ignore Frankie Valli and Sha-na-na for the Woodstock people out there. But I do love the dance scene where they do the actual big dance. The cinematography by Bill Butler is amazing because I don't think I've ever seen a dance scene where the camera just really crafts suspense. It's constantly moving around. You're constantly seeing different people doing dance moves that I would assume would break their neck. Now it's led to the joke about everybody in high school being a professional dancer in dance sequences. But it's so good. And that's because it's got my girl Cha-Cha, who is the best. <laughs> Much like Rizzo has a bad reputation, which I love. It's Frenchie that gets in on it. I was like, no, you're supposed to be an ally. Please don't. <laughs> For all of the time Cha-Cha spends on screen, which is not a whole lot. God, she makes that sequence her own because she is so awesome. Sandy, you guys wouldn't have won. I maintain, no. this is my hot take. Danny and Sandy would not have won that dance. Danny and Cha-Cha would have. So I feel like she did him a favor. Oh yeah. The entire dance sequence is just wonderful. And I'm so glad you highlighted the cinematography because it is home to one of my favorite cinematic storytelling moments in any movie musical. And it is when they show Cha-Cha slowly walking through the crowd and she's got her sights set on Danny. She just knows what she's going into. And this walk she does is so sultry and it is timed perfectly with a roaring saxophone. And it is just like, oh, this is sex on legs. (laughs) She is coming for you. And it is so beautiful. It is pure cinema. And I think people forget too that the T-Birds are the ones that screw Sandy over. It has nothing to do with Cha Cha. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've got to paint it as if it's her fault, as if Sonny and Judy did not absolutely physically pick her up and take her out of the scene. <laughs> yep. So obviously Cha-Cha's the best character in the movie, arguably because she's so captivating and charismatic and I love her because she does more with her screen time than anybody except for maybe Rizzo because we all have a bad girl. It's really impeccable how good her dancing is because the choreography for the rest of Grief is pretty goofy. So it yeah. just really <laughs> elevates how fantastic she is. And also Not to knock Travolta, who is going toe-to-toe. He's also very good. Yeah, he's doing great. But honestly, I look at Travolta and I expect you to be great. But when she comes out of nowhere with just these beautiful kicks and wonderful footwork and this beautiful incorporation of her skirts, the choreography in Grease 1 is really silly. We've got people doing sidesteps with finger guns, swinging lassos (laughs) over their heads. And and let's not not forget all the genitals near people's face. Uh-huh. I, love, I love that Eve Arden's character says vulgar dance movements will be disqualified. I'm pretty sure Danny and Cha-Cha did eight and they won. So that was standard. <laughs> totally. I understand that Patty Simcox is supposed to be as a character, the goody goody that everyone loves to hate. I know that's her purpose, but the fact that they flash her underwear on live television, rude. She did not deserve that. I don't care what a know-it-all she is. 
I do want to give Annette Charles, who played Cha-Cha, all the credit. She passed away back in 2011, allegedly walked away from Hollywood because she couldn't get great roles as a Latina. Good for her. I'm glad she was able to hopefully have a really great life outside of Hollywood. I also have to throw out probably my favorite musical moment, which is the teen angel moment, beauty school dropout. If there's a moment that I'm going to belt something, it's this song. That was the biggest problem I had with Grease Live when they did it for TV is they got boys to men to perform that. And I was like, okay, cool. Three-part harmony. It works for this, but it did not give the sequence it's due. To talk about the subversion of this film, and it doesn't happen a lot. I do love that is a whole musical moment where poor Frenchie is looking for some advice and somebody to just pat her on the shoulder and tell her everything's going to be okay. And Frankie Avalon, beach blanket bingo, Frankie Avalon comes out and says, nope, you suck. You should probably (laughs) go back to school. If there is any moment that is just actually painfully and honestly lampooning its source material, it is that sequence. Oh, and mind you, she's hallucinating this. So that is her own (laughs) psyche telling her this. Very true. I don't know. I'd like to think that there was maybe something in the punch or something (laughs) she was eating in those weird diner hamburgers that made her actually have a hallucinogenic moment. If only because I love that she came up with the weird curler metallic head thing that everybody's wearing in that sequence. The pyramid of metal rollers on top of all of their heads while also wearing very Grecian-inspired outfits. Are they angels? Are they muses? Who knows? This culminates with a drag race because you got to have a group of dudes in fast cars driving down something, a la Rebel Without a Cause, and it's fine. We haven't talked about Kimiki in very much, but if there's any relationship that is deep, complex, and loving, it's the relationship between Danny and Kimiki. We talk now about coded relationships, queer theory and and subtext. And I always maintain that Danny and Kinnicky, they have a deeper romance than Danny and Sandy. I agree Mm -hmm. completely. And we brought this up on our episode as well. The relationship between Danny and Kinnicky is so endearing and sweet. And there is such a pure love that they have for one another because No one can love you quite like your boy. That's what they've got going on here. And there even is little moments of the 50 style gay panic of they're so excited and they're hugging. And then it's like, wait, we got to separate and brush our hair and look cool. No one can know that we actually (laughs) care about each other and have feelings. As much as I look at that and a lot of people can read that as problematic, of course, it's sweet. It's a sweet thing because it's two boys who don't know what to do with their feelings because they have crushes on each other. They could love each other all they want. All they had to do was say no homo and it would have fixed it. (laughs) I think it does a better job of reminding us that these are supposed to be teenagers than Uh anything, even though they are two grown men. The ending is one of those. People either love it or they hate it. The Sandy transformation sequence. I want to ask you both the question. We've distilled the ending of Greece down to this very simple concept. And I don't think it's as simple as people make it out to be. Does the movie ultimately say women specifically have to become quote unquote skanky in order to get the love of a man? It's so much more complicated than that. It's easy to put it down there. That is my frustration of like the lack of media literacy in this film of that is the message people are taking away. Because I do Mm -hmm. think it's more complicated than that. 
Because ultimately, we also don't know, does Sandy like this new life for herself? Is this her embracing who she's always been inside? I mean, it's a good look. It's a a great (laughs) look. But we don't have the answers to that question. I will say this is probably the most forceful and confident and self-assured she is in the entire movie. There's a lot of things that you can be reading. The issue that I have is honestly less about hers and more about Danny's where he's got his little Letterman sweater on. And the second he sees her, he's like, well, F that I'm done with that (laughs) now because she changed for me. So I don't got to do any sort of budging. I wish that he would have kept the sweater because then that way we're seeing, oh, we're meeting each other on your levels. I'm getting a little bit more responsible and she's loosening up a little bit, not loose in the sense of like loose women, but loose in the sense of she's not so buttoned up and conservative. That I think would have been the stronger ending. People forget that he has that jacket on. It looks like a sweater to me, Uh but I think people forget that he's wearing that at the end because I'm like, well, he technically changes for her. It's something that is not necessarily adhered to, but we don't really know. We don't know if these two characters will stick to what they've decided to do. I don't even have any belief in the fact that they ended up together at the end. Which high school romance is really last? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the statistics, but do we really think they ended up together forever? I don't know. I'm more confused by the fact that the car flies away at the end. <laughs> of course. Um, that's my big problem with the movies. I was like, why is it flying? Where are they flying to? Are we again <laughs> on something? That's my big issue. If the car had stayed on the ground, I would have been able to think about what we were actually talking about. <laughs> Two things for me is that one gets more jarring that Sandy changes because it comes out of nowhere. And Danny, we see moments where he tries to change throughout the whole movie. It doesn't work very well, but he makes an effort and she's just like, surprise, look at what I've been doing off screen this whole time. And people were not prepared for it. But the more controversial ending to me is that it doesn't end with you're the one that I want. There's a whole nother song we don't need that just happens, they could have played that over the credits. It would have been fine. But instead, it's just rising action and we're climaxing. And now goofy dancing at the ensemble, almost like a play. (laughs) Yeah, we got to have that big money number with the entire chorus and somebody doing duck walk for whatever reason that was the choreography that was chosen. That's the one moment because I'm an insufferable musical theater person. Whenever that kid busts out the penguin hobble, duck walk, I lose my mind because I cannot (laughs) believe that was approved for a movie (laughs) to be on screen forever. It also makes me question, to go back to the flying car, Kaniki gave Danny the car? Kaniki bought Grease Lightning, but did he give it away? Is he bringing the flying car back at the end of their joyride? (laughs) I was more concerned about car ownership. Like, okay, (laughs) Sandy's found who she is temporarily. That's great. Did they sign some sort of contract that they're splitting this car? Maybe there's a deeper relationship. We never see where these characters live. Maybe Danny and Kaniki are like Randolph Scott and Cary Grant. Maybe they live together. I don't know. <laughs> these are the enduring questions that I have about Greece. Overall, as much as we deconstructed Greece, I still really enjoy it. Part of the stupidity of it is why I like it, because it is one of those movies that you can watch as many times over and still find something that is weird about it. Mm -hmm. It could have only happened in 1978. That's what I love about 70s movies as the code has crumbled and Mm -hmm. studios are trying to find ways to get the youths into the theaters. 
that they were just throwing anything at the wall. And Greece is a prime example of anything. <laughs> I love it for that. Harmony BJ, what about you? This is the same thing that I said on our show, as critical as I am of this movie, because I feel like I'm extra critical because so many people are not critical of it. This is a movie that lives in my bones. I know every lyric. I know every note. I know every dance move. I know which character is doing something weird in the background to point to, because ultimately this is such a foundational film of who I am. That's why I've spent so much time thinking about it, probably more than most people do. I do like the film. I am still a bigger fan of Grease too, but I do still like Grease. And it's a movie I wish people would have deeper conversations about because it deserves that. It deserves more than the surface level interpretation. As is the case with a lot of movies from the 70s in particular, is that, yeah, there's things that haven't aged well. It's going to be 50 years old here, not too far off from now. But as deep as you want it to be, you can just look at it and be like, look, movement and colors and music. And it's extremely satisfying in that sense because it is so poppy and satisfying. There's really interesting character studies that are going on because it is a messy film with messy teens. That is, to me, is, is compelling because it's not trying to necessarily push it like, here's how you should be an upstanding citizen, like a good health film that you watch in school. It's just like, here's some kids doing dumb shit and take from it what you will. I'm very interested to see if that Rydell High series ever comes to fruition because I just see it as some sort of weird 50s take on Euphoria that <laughs> I don't know if I want, but who knows? BJ Harmony, where can fans find your work, find you on social media? Feel free to plug anything that you have coming up that they should know about. Sure. So you can find our show anywhere you get your podcasts. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Calangelo. I'm also a writer at Slash Film, so you can check out my random ramblings and occasional posting over there. As far as our, our show is concerned, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary, our 100th episode. So we're going to be talking about Heathers. I'm really excited for it. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. I'm doing stuff. I don't know <laughs> what's going to be done or allowed to be discussed by anytime soon, but I'm doing things. Follow me there. Then you'll know about it eventually. So there you go. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. Remember, head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. This is going to be the only place that you can hear Harmony and BJ talk to me about 1982's Grease sequel, appropriately titled Grease 2. While you're over there, you can listen to our six-week series on Being Elvis, all six episodes, including our look at Baz Luhrmann's 2022 feature. We also have episodes of Double Features, where we talked about Against All Odds versus Out of the Past. A lot of stuff over there, patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Ticklishbiz is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's been a while since we've had a review, so please, if you're on Apple Podcasts, Tell us what you think of the show. It really helps get eyeballs on us. And we are on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. If you are on Twitter, we are at ticklish underscore biz. All other platforms, we are at ticklish biz. And if you are on Twitter, then please be sure to enter our daily contest we've had for every day in the month of August in honor of TCM Summer Under the Stars. The winner that we pick will get to choose which star they want Samantha to make artwork of, and we will put it on an item and send it to them. So a lot of fun stuff. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Till then.